want to start right on time here. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I have a lot to say, but I'm not going to say it um, because we have wonderful people who are going to say a lot of great things. And so you don't need to hear from me. Um, but it's kind of like that old Yiddish joke. Before I speak, I want to say something. And so let me uh, actually say something before the folks who are going to say something. Say something. So firstly, I mean, we, we, we really lost uh, a giant, a giant. And a giant in um, Jewish thought is called a gadol, a gadol, or a gadola in this case. A great, a great person, um, you know, um, in, in, in various ways, just the stature. And there's two things you do when someone passes after the morning in terms of learning. One, you learn in one's memory uh, because that itself is meaningful for us and for one's memory. But secondly, we try to think about virtues that a person had in their life and try to think about how to, uh, how to live with those virtues um, in, in our own lives and how to bring those into our workplace and into our homes. And in this case, uh, into, our, uh, into our society. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that, uh, that great folks here could join us. And as, as usual, part of our Jayberg Wilk, Jayberg Wilk uh, learning series, the opportunity to learn together. And when I saw, when I thought about this, I said, geez, what are we gonna do as a community? I said, who is a person, I automatically thought of Judy Shaffert, who is a person who has Jewish knowledge and commitment? Who is a person who understands women's rights and women's leadership? Who is a person who appreciates the judicial process? <laughs> and who's a person who, who, um, who lives with, um, with virtues and strives each day to do so? And, you know, and a person who, who, who served most recently as chief staff attorney of the Arizona Supreme Court, before that who practiced law as an assistant Arizona attorney general, who earlier clerked for an Arizona Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, someone who really understands this world very much. And so I reached out to Judy. I said, Judy, we got to put something together. And I gave her a week to do it. <laughs> I didn't actually give her a week, but, but somehow we pulled it together in a week. And so now here we are. And so I'm going to pass it over, over to Judy Shaffert, who's going to have the chance to uh, introduce our program. And uh, I look forward to learning with you all. Judy, take it away. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rosh Um, This is really an honor, and uh, like anything involving the United States Supreme Court, always a little bit intimidating. Uh, I figure we get by with a little help from our friends, and I have two friends who have been judges and who are excellent teachers, so I thought immediately of Toby Gerst and Scott Bales, and of course, Vicki Cabot, who has a depth of Jewish knowledge that leaves me in the dust and who has been writing for many years for the Jewish community. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introductions. You got them, the bios in the uh, materials that you received this morning with the link. So I'm going to jump quickly to Vicki, then we'll proceed to Toby to talk about uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg's career as a practicing attorney and the specific case that's illustrative. I will talk about one of her um, infamous dissents. And um, then Scott will talk about everything else in whatever time is left. And then, <laughs> and, yeah, we're ambitious. And then, uh, and then we'll uh, open things up to questions. Feel free, if you're not uh, someone who likes to talk out loud, to type something into the chat when you've got a question. When uh, the speaker is sharing the screen, they can't see the chat, but we will try to get to all your questions eventually. And Vicki, please lead us off. My pleasure. 
First of all, thank you, uh, Rabbi, for giving us this opportunity to do, as you said, where it's just most appropriate is to learning uh, in someone's memory and also to speak about her virtues, which are many, and that's what we're going to cover on. Um, and Judy, for organizing this and, and inviting me to be to participate, as well as the others, uh, very august members of this, of this panel. Um, those of you who know me know that I like to write, and it's easier for me to gather my thoughts when I sit down and write something out. So if you'll indulge me, that's, that's what I did. Um, I tried to keep to uh, Bader Sanders, I guess for Sanders though, and that get it right, keep it tight. So here we go, 10 minutes. Uh, just as with Bader Ginsburg's dark wood coffin, swathed in the red, white, and blue of our stars and stripes, lying in the state in the Capitol, the first Jew, the first Jewish woman to be accorded that honor deeply moved me. Only in America, I thought, even as our country royals with the vitriol of this year's exceptionally turbulent election, even as our streets have erupted in violence as racial inequality threatens to tear us apart, even as a virulent pandemic leaves a path of illness, death, and suffering. Ginsburg leaves behind a historic legacy, as Chief Justice John Roberts has noted, doing more in her more than half century as a fierce advocate for justice, liberty, and equality under the law than so many others. She epitomizes the very foundations of this country and the very fruits, I believe, of living in such a system as an American, as a woman, as a Jew. Her accomplishments as lawyer, judge, and justice are legion. My fellow panelists will provide the perceptive insights on them, but I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about what she brought with her to bar and bench and how her experiences within the cultural moment in which she lived shaped her sensitivities and sensibilities. Ginsburg, as you probably know, was the daughter of Jewish immigrants. Her father emigrated from Russia to the United States at the age of 13. Her mother was born four months after her family had fled Poland for this country. Ginsburg was born in 33 in Brooklyn in one of those ethnic enclaves that proliferated in the 1930s and 40s. She grew up among a mix of hardworking Jews, Italians, and Irish, all struggling to get a toehold in their new land. Her father tried to make a living in a variety of small businesses. Her mother, who had graduated high school at 15 and went to, and went to work to put her brother, as often happened in those days, through college, a homemaker. The family lived in a modest home in Flatbush where Ruth went to public school, Hebrew school at East Midwood Jewish Center and Jewish summer camp. But it was hard for newcomers in those post-World War II days. There was a nationalistic, nativist, isolationist, isolationist fervor that gripped the nation. There was a desire to restore the nation's white, Protestant character. Uh, Jonathan Sarna, a Jewish historian, pointed out. And it inspired a chauvinistic nationalism. Immigrants, Catholics, Jews were suspect, especially Jews, who some thought could be political radicals or Bolsheviks. The Immigration Act of 1924 strengthened measures to staunch the flow with stringent quotas and Jews were hit hard, with Jewish immigration falling to less than 7% of those who arrived during its earlier peak. The year that Ginsburg was born, 33, Hitler ascended to power and America's stores were closing to the Jews. The Depression had only further fueled the anti-immigrant sentiment and rising anti-Semitism. There were educational quotas, restrictive covenants, occupational discrimination, restrictions on Jews in clubs, fraternities, sororities, hotels, etc., etc., including elite neighborhoods, barring Jews and others. But adversity promoted unity, and gradually Jews progressed, working hard, 
making their own way. And that's when Ginsburg came of age, as Jews in America were beginning to feel more at home and the possibility of making a better life became more real. Encouraged by her mother, she excelled in school and went on to Cornell, only one of two Ivy League schools at that time that admitted both men and women to their classes. Graduated Phi Beta Kappa, admitted to Harvard Law School, married her college sweetheart, Marty Ginsburg, along the way. It was an American success story in the making, and Ginsburg was grateful for the opportunities afforded her, despite those that were closed off. She said, what has become of me could only happen in America. But being a woman in mid-20th century America could have easily sidelined the aspiring lawyer despite her brilliance. It was the 1950s, a post-World War II America, the boys coming home from the war, going to work, the women at home, return to prosperity, a return to normalcy, a resurgence of traditional gender roles, growing families, and women expected to be wives and mothers. But Ginsburg often said she had married the right man. Marrying Marty was the most fortunate thing to happen to me, she said of her husband in 56 years, who passed away in 2010. From the beginning, the couple considered themselves co-partners in life, law, and marriage, finding ways for each of them to pursue satisfying careers while still tending to home and hearth. At Harvard Law School in the 50s, where Ginsburg was only one of nine women in her class of 500, the dean famously suggested that she was taking the place of a man. But despite the birth of her daughter Jane, the same year she became a 1AL, despite nursing her husband back to health when he was stricken with a deadly cancer and helping keep him keep up with his classes, she made law review and distinguished herself as a budding lawyer. She hired a nanny and later said that having a child helped provide balance in her life. In trying to find a place in the job market of the 50s, despite her sterling credentials and obvious intellect, was difficult. Ginsburg had hoped for a prestigious clerkship or position with a sterling New York law firm. A law professor had recommended Ginsburg for a position as clerk to Justice Felix Frankfurter. The justice, who had never hired a woman, declined to even invite Ginsburg for an interview. She observed, to be a woman, a Jew, and a mother to boot, that combination was a bit too much. Instead, she clerked at U.S. District Court, went into teaching, first at Rutgers and then Columbia, and found her calling imagining a world where men and women would have equal standing. She became the director of ACLU's Women's Rights Project, where a half dozen cases would build her incremental step-by-step -step march towards gender equality. It was the 1960s by then, a time of cataclysmic change in America, the civil rights movement, anti-war protests, beginnings of heightened sensitivity to those who were being excluded or left behind. The Immigration Act of 65 opened doors to a new influx of Americans. The Civil Rights Acts pushed the country towards becoming a fairer, more equal, more just nation. The Fair Housing Act struck down restrictions that had kept Jews, Blacks, and others out of some neighborhoods. And the activist ferment and beginnings of a consciousness of America's vibrant diversity and troubling inequalities argued the growing awareness of gender inequality. It was an auspicious time for Ginsburg's strategic attack through the courts. Her understanding that gender, uh, gender equity applied to all men and women, that feminism meant equal opportunity for both, that women could manage their children's estates and men could receive benefits to be the primary caregivers of their children, that just because Ginsburg had a husband who made a nice salary, she could, should still be paid the same as a male coworker who was the sole support of his family, and that just because she was a mother, 
she could also be a lawyer. There were a few role models for her in her early years when aspiring to go to college and become a history teacher. Her mother's dream for her, limited ambition, even for the most exceptional girls. There were few female law students, even fewer law professors, and certainly not those on career track. She became the first tenured uh, woman professor at Columbia in the 70s. But as she's often quoted, real change, enduring change, comes one step at a time. But what is it that fired the tiny legal dynamo to take up this charge and labor arduously for incremental change? In a recent New York Times op-ed, Jennifer Weiner raised the issue of Ginsburg's Jewishness and whether it was another significant influence on her work. I loved the headline, the very Jewish RBG, especially now when we are discussing whether Amy Coney Barrett's Catholicism impacts her legal reasoning. Weiner writes, Jewish values ran through her opinions like a silver thread. If you've been excluded, you fight for inclusion. If you've made to feel less than because of your gender or your sexual orientation or your race or your religion, you stand up for others who've been denied a seat at the table. There was a gold mezuzah on the doorpost of Ginsburg's chambers, a rendering of the biblical call to action, justice, justice shall ye pursue on her wall. As Ginsburg confided to Abigail Pogrebin in her book, Stars of David, her Jewish identity came from being part of a people who had been persecuted, but had endured. That she was part of a tradition that valued learning, the people of the book, and part of a faith that exhorted action, doing the work. That she may have eschewed traditional observance, especially as she told Pogrebin after the tragic death of her mother and cancer, and Ginsburg was just to graduate from high school, and memories of being excluded from the Shiva Minyan because she was a girl. She had a strong Jewish identity that informed her view of the world and fired her pursuit of justice. McGrevin recounts an anecdote that illuminates Ginsburg's Jewish sensibilities and her sense of obligation. Her first year on the court, Ginsburg's clerk told her of letters that Orthodox lawyers awarded Supreme Court membership certificates. Those are the certificates they receive when they appear before the court asking if the words in the year of our Lord, which is clearly Christological, would be removed or not on them. Ginsburg pursued the issue and finally in a conference with her fellow justices, one of them demurred. If it was good enough for Brandeis, he said, and good enough for Cardozo, it was good enough, he argued, and Ginsburg said, it's not good enough for Ginsburg. And that mezuzah on her door, it's enough to identify Ginsburg as a Jew, she said, but also to signal during the Christmas holidays, please, no wreath here. But if I had to choose one biblical teaching that exemplifies her, it would be from the Pinocchio vote. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. It's a reminder to us that the work is not yet done. That is the work of generations now and in the future to continue to honor her memory through their efforts. And so I feel enormously indebted to Ginsburg for her work, though I may have lived during an era when I would not have reaped its rewards, but I still have benefited from that and both for myself and those who come after me. My children born in the 70s came of age in the 90s with a world of opportunities to choose from. They have had an array of choices in terms of education, occupation, marriage, and family. And that is precisely what Ginsburg envisioned, a world of choice, of choices, and the opportunity to find one's own path. As one of her former clerks observed, Ginsburg was fighting for women to get things right for themselves. 
As my daughter-in-law, a lawyer, and a mother wrote when I asked her her thoughts on Ginsburg's passing, RBG paved the path not only for me to become a lawyer in the first place, but to do the kind of work that I do. She was a brilliant litigator who fought to end gender equality, who had the gift to imagine a world without it, and has transformed the way gender is viewed under the law. Gender is viewed under the law. I am forever inspired by her quiet commitment to the law as a tool for progress and change. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, I think if anybody's, uh, there are no uh, comments in the, in the uh, chat. So why don't we proceed to Toby? Okay. Please. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you um, very much, Judy and, and Rabbi, for uh, inviting me to be a panelist. And thanks to every participant who wants to come and learn and continue the work of this extraordinary woman. Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated from law school in an era when it was difficult, if not impossible, for women to obtain employment. It was unthinkable that women would be discriminated against for her own protection. For instance, employers could legally fire a woman for being pregnant. Don't I feel protected? Limited work days, limited upward mobility. You can only work eight hours a day, so you can't apply for that position because you're going to be working more than eight hours. Banks could require a woman applying for credit to have her husband co-sign. My first credit card was with Saks Fifth Avenue. The name on my card was Mrs. Stephen A. Gerst. My friend's the same. Husbands were community property managers in community property states. Not all, but, but some. Women couldn't get an interview. They couldn't get hired. Women were hired at greatly reduced wages. There were women attorneys, and there were attorneys who took on individual discrimination cases on a case-by-case -case basis. The ACLU Women's Rights Project was focused, however, on something else. They targeted discrimination on the basis of sex. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the co-founder, and she was a professor at Rutgers and ultimately at uh, Columbia. And she was very much involved with the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. Her intellectual presence was focused on a more enduring change targeting discrimination. She wasn't interested in just doing it simply case by case. She wanted a change of constitutional magnitude. And in order to expand the arc of the moral universe to include equality for everybody, she had to find and use the right case and the right facts. And she did. And her legacy is equality, not just for women, equality. She challenged gender discrimination by representing men as well as women who were the subject of discrimination. We're going to be looking at a few cases like that. To help the non-lawyer participants fully benefit from the principles that I and the others will be um, enunciating, we're going to look at a few foundational legal concepts. So this will take about uh, four minutes, give or take. And now, here we go, screen share. Um, Slide didn't, did the slide come up? 
No, we only see your um, your Zoom screen right now. Uh -huh, there we go. Here it there is. We go. Okay. And to start with the rule of law, we've been hearing a lot about the rule of law. Well, there are four pillars to the rule of law. First, separation of powers, legislative, executive, and judicial branch of government. We knew that from, from, from school. And if one branch gets too much power, <coughs> the, it, it, it challenges the necessary tension between the three, uh, the three branches of government. The second is guaranteed individual rights. And the third, equal protection of the law. That is, all persons are entitled to equal protection, and we'll talk about what that means, and due process of law. Those are the four pillars of a rule of law. The corollary or the, or the antonym for the rule of law is tyranny, it's dictatorship, and it's totalitarian states. With regard to legal rights and their enforcement, looking at the nature of law, you can divide the law like the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. There's the criminal law, where people commit a crime against the state. There is the civil law, one person suing another person, two people are involved. Taking a look at the types of law, there is constitutional law. Constitutional law is like, if you liken it to a body, constitutional law is, is the skeletal structure, it's the spine, it's, it's the bones. Statutory law, state and federal law, can be likened to, um, to mus your muscles and your sinew, uh, and, and case law, when we get to number four, case law is like the heart, it's the mind, it's the body organs, it's what interprets the constitutional law, the statutory law, and the administrative regulations. Next, we're gonna talk about something called amicus curiae. Amicus curiae is Latin, it means friend of the court, that other people besides the direct parties to the to the case can actually file a, a brief to help the court it furnishes information it furnishes advice it can play an important and sometimes really critical role by bringing some relevant facts to the court that the parties may not have already addressed not everybody can jump in and throw uh, a an amicus curiae brief uh, into the court, it, 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 is, it is within the discretion and the sound discretion of the court to, um, to deny the amicus curiae brief. Going to the Constitution, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution without which the Constitution would never have uh, because the states demanded it, are what we're gonna be talking about and what the others are gonna be talking about, what everybody's talking about. And we'll move down to the last two sentences. You've all heard it. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Can you be deprived of life, liberty, and property? Well, sure, but not without due process. We have to do it the right way. We don't kill anybody without doing it the right way. We don't take his property without doing it the right way. And we don't de de deter his liberty without doing it the right way, without due process nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. This is, an important, this is an important theme. It's not one I'm going to be addressing. It's one which will probably be addressed by the Supreme Court in light of the Kelo case. I'm not sure if anybody's going to be doing that. We could come back to it if you want. Now, here comes the 14th Amendment. This is after the Civil War. Looking at the last two 
uh, sentences here. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Sounds familiar? It is familiar. The Fifth Amendment protects us against incursions by the federal government. And the 14th Amendment protects us against incursions by the state government. Arizona can't do it, California can't do it, New York and Wisconsin can't do it. Nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, this becomes important because equal protection of laws is guaranteed to people against the state governments. Now we come to something called the incorporation doctrine. And we're gonna be talking about that later. You're gonna be seeing it. Incorporation means that portions of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, actually eight of them, are applicable to the states. And how do we do it? How does the court do it? It, it is done brilliantly. The due process clause of the Fifth Amendment that protects people against incursions by the federal government protects persons against incursions by the state government by pulling the two due processes together and incorporating them, case by case, uh, amendment by amendment. Reverse incorpor incorporation is something also interesting because that means using state law to fill in the gaps when the Supreme Court itself has not considered it before. So the state has, has equal protection in the 14th that the that the uh, federal government did not have in the fifth and there are other areas the reverse incorporation doctrine has not been used very often now we're going to go directly to the cases what happened here was ruth bader ginsburg selected her cases she got them because she heard about them because people came to him, because she read a letter to the editor in the New York Times by somebody who was aggrieved. These were all cases that she handled before she took silk. She was not appointed to the bench at this time, and uh, she was working at the ACLU. Come on, come on, be kind. We're gonna start with a case called Frontiero. Sharon Frontiero, was a lieutenant in the United States Air Force. Her husband was a military veteran and he was a full-time student, but he was no longer in the, matter, the, the, uh, in the Air Force or in the armed services. So Lieutenant Sharon applied for housing and medical benefits for her husband, Joseph, whom she claimed as a dependent. Now servicemen, men, could claim their wives as dependent and get benefits for them automatically. Service women had approved that their husbands were dependent on them for more than half of their support. Joseph didn't qualify under the rule and therefore there were no benefits. So she brought an action. The case was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Frontiero was represented by the Southern Law Poverty Center. Ruth Bader Ginsburg used, remember that word, amicus curiae brief to help the court. So what happened? The Supreme Court held benefits given by the United States military to family, family of service members cannot be given out differently because of sex. This is not case by case, this is generic. This is the United States Constitution talking to you through the Supreme Court. The military establishment was informed that in terms of pay, allowances, general treatment, women were to be treated on the equal plane as the men, 
and the court did not issue a broad decision requiring the military to prove in the courts its reasons for excluding women for combat. They did ask for that. And we can go into any of these cases in a little more depth if there's time later, but I, I want to stay in the timeline. The next case is Weisenberger versus Weisenfeld. Now, this is one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's most favorite cases of all time. Stephen, and the facts are sad. I, I want you to know, oftentimes in the law, facts are sad. Stephen Weisenfeld and Paula were married in 1970. Stephen had an irregular income and it was because he was a startup computer firm. Paula earned more than her husband. She was a school teacher. She taught high school math. Paula died in childbirth. They were so happy to be pregnant, to have a child, to have a beautiful, a beautiful pregnancy, and then she died from an amniotic um, event, uh, embolism. So Stephen became the sole provider for the support of their newborn child. To take care of his son, he cut his work hours, and he wanted social security benefits and, and childcare. And there's a man who's being deprived, deprived of something here. Social security benefits were, were made available to widows, but not to widowers. And it was an eight to zero vote with one abstention with Justice Douglas abstaining from, from voting. It was held that Section 402G of the Social Security Administration Act was unconstitution, unconstitutional because of the gender-based protections. The gender-based protections violated the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Why the Fifth Amendment? Because it's the federal government. It was a federal law. She's a federal employee, and it's the Fifth Amendment. Justice Brennan wrote for the court, and he said such a gender-based generalization can't suffice to justify the denigration. It's important the way the judges think about this. They can't denigrate women who do work and whose earnings significantly contribute to the family's support. So the Constitution, by their reading it, forbids the gender-based differentiation that results in the efforts of female workers being required to pay social security debts and then getting less protection for their families than is produced by the efforts of men. Now, what was important there is a man was aggrieved and the, the equality that this case represented, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg knew, I'm not gonna get it all, all at one time. Brick by brick by brilliant brick, that's how she built it. Uh, and then they have this boring case to withstand constitutional challenge. We're not going to talk about the facts. Uh, and this is equal protection of the 14th Amendment. Classifications by gender must serve important governmental objectives to be substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. Now, this relates to a test that's used to determine will the law withstand constitutional challenge. Next, Califano versus Goldfarb. At this time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was general counsel for the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Leon Gold, and this is once again a federal case. The last one we'll go to is a state case. We're not there yet. Leon Goldfarb was a widower. He applied for survivor's benefits under the Social Security Act. 
His wife, Hannah, had paid social security taxes for 25 years. That's a quarter of a century. She paid social security. But his application for survivor's benefits was denied. To be eligible for benefits under the US code, section 402, he must have been receiving half of his support from his wife at the time of, his, of, of, her, of her death. Section 402 did not impose that requirement on widows whose husbands had passed away recently. So Goldfarb challenged the statute under due process clause of the Fifth Amendment in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York. The district court, which is a trial court, the trial court is the jury trial level. That's the first case, that's the first court that you see. The appellate court does not have juries. They only determine issues of law. So you have an intermediate court of appeals, and then you have the Supreme Court. They also only determine issues of law. The district court ruled the statute was unconstitutional. Can a general jurisdiction judge sitting at the trial level declare a statute unconstitutional? You bet. So the issue is, and this is the way I'm framing the issue for you. The second framing of the issue is the way a lawyer would frame the issue. And I just want you to see the difference. It says the, the same thing, but you can see the precision of an attorney framing an issue. This is a G. Kenneth Ryblett kind of issue here. Do the gender-based requirements for survivors' benefits in Section 402, that's the Social Security Act, violate due process of the, the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment? Now, in framing a real clear issue, this is the issue. And, and the clear-cut, the clear-cut delineation of, of, a, of a sharp thinking lawyer is the ability to see the real issue. And here's the issue. Does the gender-based distinction, men and widows, men and women, widows and widowers, violate due process of the Fifth Amendment, protecting us against the federal government, where the Social Security Act survivor's benefits were payable to a widower only if he was receiving at least half of his support from his late wife, while such benefits based on the earnings of a deceased husband were payable to his widow regardless of dependency? So you see a proper issue frames not merely the facts, but what is involved and what do you want? What are you looking for? What, where where it has this case uh, uh, needed some help? So the holding was the distinct, she won by the way. She, she argued six cases, she handled over 134 cases. She argued six cases before the Supreme Court and she won five of those as OB, the ACLU. I, Am I out of time? You, you are pretty much out of time, yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you give us a, a, a thumbnail of the last case without going into it? Oh, sure. In this case, Duran was, uh, he was tried for criminal, he was tried for first degree murder and robbery in the state court. And the jury, he, his conviction was affirmed in the state court. The jury was comprised primarily of men because women were given an automatic excuse. All they had to do was ask to be excused from a jury. And he claimed that the, the claim was that, that that was not a jury of his peers because there was inequality in the jury selection. And that dealt with the 14th Amendment of the Constitution and uh, due process. So this was due process in the 14th Amendment. Thank you. That's, You're welcome. I hope everybody can understand and absorb that. That was just terrific.
Um, if you could stop sharing your screen, oh, that would be very I'm kind. Sorry, yeah. Okay, thanks. And I am going to share mine. This is um, now all that uh, expansion of rights during during the um, that era resulted in uh, something of a backlash, and uh, the the uh, Supreme Court makeup changed, and by 2013, Justice Ginsburg found herself not in the majority but in the minority. As with Jewish text study, legal text study, we start with the text. Uh, Toby talked about the Civil War Amendments. One of the important Civil War Amendments, my, and I'm dealing with voting rights, act, uh, voting rights here, is that the 15th Amendment gave uh, citizens of the United States the right to vote that uh, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state. Again, extending this to the states on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So it was aimed at giving black men the right to vote and not to be interfered with by the government. And then it says the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Well, uh, many years later, almost 100 years later, it was still going on. It was a mess. And uh, the result was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So there are three key sections that I'm going to talk about here. Section two forbids any standard practice or procedure that results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen to vote on account of race or color. And one of the important factors in Section 2 is that anyone can sue to enforce Section 2. Section 4B is called the coverage formulas. And it, um, based on the history of discrimination and bad acting, uh, somebody who falls under Section 4B is covered by the preclearance requirements at, of Section 5. Now, the Voting Rights Act was, uh, so preclearance is basically it's a mother may I provision. And if, if there's any change in voting laws, the Department of Justice has to clear that it doesn't have a discriminatory purpose that would diminish the citizens' ability to elect their preferred candidates of choice. Now it says on account of race, color, or language minority status. So the Voting Rights Act was expanded and reauthorized in 1970 for five years, 1975 for seven years, 1982 for 25 years, and in 2006 it was reauthorized for 25 more years. Uh, there was a decision in 2009 coming out of the Supreme Court called the Northwest Austin uh, v. Holder case, and it held that a subdivision of one of these states, as you can see, there's a lot of states who are not covered and uh, uh, 15 states that were covered by the uh, Section 5 preclearance at the time of the Shelby County decision. So uh, Austin, Northwest Austin held that, that you could sue to bail out of 
uh, an individual district as opposed to a whole state or a whole county could sue to bail out of the Voting Rights Act uh, preclearance requirement. And it upheld the Voting Rights Act as, the, as it had been upheld earlier. So uh, Chief Justice Roger, Roberts wrote the uh, majority opinion in Shelby, and he was very focused on, on the notion of a fundamental principle of equal sovereignty among the states. He basically said it's a raw deal for these states that were uh, bad actors before the 1960s uh, that they should remain covered by preclearance and it, that um, you have to have some kind of relationship between the problem targeted and the disparate geographic coverage. That was the main focus of a not very long majority opinions. So here um, he's saying it's old data that was then, this is now. Uh, you don't have literacy tests anymore. There's no more low voter registration. There, this was important before, but now it, it's not justified anymore. <laughs> he, he basically said, ah, problem solved. Uh, he was very focused on this fundamental principle of equal sovereignty. And he basically took something that was a, um, a bit of, uh, of, of minor uh, language from the from the Northwest Austin case, which he had written and that had been basically unanimous. It was an eight-one decision, and he he said that's that's what the law is now. So uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not the only one who has had this this um, strategy of uh, incremental changes. Everybody uses this stuff to. to um, lay the groundwork and the spade work for later decisions that they hope will become the majority opinion. Uh, needless to say, Justice Ginsburg was not uh, particularly persuaded. Unfortunately, she didn't persuade enough of the others to join with her. So it was a five, five to four decision. Oh, and uh, you should note what is she is wearing around her neck. That's called her descent collar. She had these various collars and, uh, that she wore with her judicial robes, and that's her descent collar. One of the things that Ginsburg emphasized is that Congress is the body that should decide the law in this case. It overwhelmingly concluded in 2006 when it renewed the Voting Rights Act that uh, for two prime reasons, Section 5, which is the preclearance, should continue in force unabated. First, Continuance would facilitate completion of the impressive gains thus far made. And I'm going to use a lot of her language because that's key to what's going on here. And second, the continuance regard against backsliding. She said that earlier court remedies were a lot like battling the Hydra because, for instance, in, one Tex in Texas, they had had whites-only uh, primary elections. They had... Uh, enacted a law that said that. 1927, the court uh, knocked that down. In 1944, it again struck down a reenacted version of that with a slightly altered uh, emphasis. And in 1953, again, they were trying to circumvent it and they had an, another variation on the all, all, all white primary. 
So um, I'm going to skip a lot of what I wrote about preclearance. Let me explain it in this way. I worked with people in, in uh, Arizona who were covered by preclearance. And I'd say, well, don't you find that a major pain in the neck to have to clear everything you want to do, uh, everything you want to change one voting location? And the elections officials said to me, you know, it keeps everybody honest. It keeps us from having to do some of the stupid stuff that um, ignorant and, or malicious actors among lawmakers might force us to do otherwise. So I think a lot of the covered jurisdictions, especially the elections officials, were very glad that they had preclearance, even though the onus was on them to, to uh, justify the changes, they could only do that uh, if, if, uh, if they were justified rather than trying to discriminate, discriminate against people. So uh, there's, there were ways of, of uh, getting the changes both by clearing them to the Department of Justice or you could seek approval of a three-judge district court. So um, Congress just can't enact anything. There has to be a rational basis advancing a legitimate uh, legislative objective and, and uh, Ginsburg was adamant that that was the case here. And here was the strange thing about the majority is that it, it seemed to be substituting its judgment for Congress's. And uh, it was basically saying there was no justification for continuing the, um, the civil right, uh, the, excuse me, the Voting Rights Act as it was in force and especially the preclearance, which it had, which, which it had ditched. So, um, the discrimination, unfortunately, continued. And even though there were impressive uh, improvements, there were second-generation barriers. So the problem was that um, you had things like voting, uh, voter ID. Uh, they, they jiggered around the location of the uh, polling places. And... Uh, the court had earlier found Congress had adequate cause to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. Remember, Northwest Austin had been decided in 2009, which was after the Voting Rights Act had been reenacted, reauthorized again in 2006. She was very concerned that, e now we talked about earlier, the uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, allows anybody to litigate. So in from 1982, now the Voting Rights Act had been enforced since 65 to 2004, there, the successful litigation in covered jurisdictions versus uncovered jurisdictions, the ones that were not, that were gray on that map that I showed you, shows that racial discrimination in voting remains concentrated in the jurisdictions that had to be, that had preclearance. And that's what the court had written in Northwest Austin versus Holder in 2009. Uh, but uh, not, not so much. Um, you can see that, um, and, and there were other reasons. Shelby County was part of a consent decree. It itself had erected barriers to black voter participation by making uh, voting at large which dilutes the votes of a, minor, of a significant minority. 
to the will of a white majority. And there was fresh evidence of racial uh, discrimination in Alabama itself in 2010. And there, there had been cases in, in the court itself, the Supreme Court, so holding. And there are problems too with the court's abandonment of its usual rejection of con constitutional challenges to legislation that the Civil War amendments authorized. Uh, finally, the Voting Rights Act itself had a very exceptionally broad severability provision. The severability provision means that if any one part or one application is um, invalid, it doesn't ditch the rest of the law, which is what had been done by the majority opinion. So um, there are terrible practical consequences by if section four is unconstitutional, you can't enforce the preclearance in section five. And without enforcement, the suppression of minority voting proceeds virtually unchecked. And this is the crowd outside the Supreme Court when this case was argued. I am not gonna go deeply into the, um, I, I, I'm, I have to apologize because our time is, is limited and I want to leave time for uh, Justice Bales to speak, but um, she was unhappy and this summarizes best and, and this is a very famous quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. So the Voting Rights Act was that is that and preclearance is that umbrella that is shading people from the, the the horrible onslaught of voting discrimination rain uh you don't want to know things have gotten very bad after shelby and these are just some examples these aren't even exhaustive examples um, i think you've all been alive when there have been these aggressive attacks on voting rights in an effort and often a very transparent effort to curb minority voting. And these are not even all the states that have made it harder to vote since 2010. Uh, it brings to mind the uh, very famous quote that uh, the past is not, oh damn, I can't remember it. Uh, we are, we're done. Uh, the, the past isn't even past, which is a, a Faulkner, a Faulkner quote. I, uh, I cede the floor to, uh, Scott Bales. You're gonna have to unmute yourself, Scott. Judy, thank you. And thank you, Rabbi Shmuley for inviting to participate in both, um, learning by remembering Justice Ginsburg and celebrating her virtues. Now, I'm going to talk about five different aspects of her legacy. It's not what Judy described as everything else. That would be truly standing on one foot. Um, Justice Ginsburg, as you know from Judge Gerst's remarks, she, she played a role as to gender equality, much like Thurgood Marshall did in securing racial equality. Uh, she was a tremendous litigator. She pursued a very deliberate, persistent strategy that took a number of years, but ultimately yielded success. Now, another 
aspect of her legacy, apart from that very important one, was uh, her role on the court in that of a dissenter. Um, an author, Linda Hirschman, who actually spends part of her time in Arizona, wrote a very um, good biography about five years ago called Sisters-in-Law, parallel biography of Justice O'Connor and Justice Ginsburg. And in the aftermath of the Shelby County decision that Judy just described, Linda labeled one of her chapters about Justice Ginsburg as the great dissenter. And that is partly an allusion to Justice John Marshall Harlan, the 19th century justice who dissented in Plessy versus Ferguson and in other cases limiting civil rights. And as, as Justice Ginsburg herself said, in a dissent, you're speaking to future generations. And, and the legacy of dissent is partly important because it can, as Plessy versus Ferguson um, illustrates, it can sometimes lead down the road to changes in the law. But it's also important because of the example it sets for discourse on the court. And I thought Justice Ginsburg was particularly important in that respect. Her dissents always focused on the merits of the arguments. They were meticulous in their attention to the facts of the case. And I think that is a good example for all of us today. Um, a very popular quote of Justice Ginsburg, which we're now beginning to see on t-shirts is that you should fight for what you care about, but do so in a way that convinces others to join you. So that is one of um, her legacies that I think is important. A second one, um, and this goes back to something that Vicki Cabot said, um, you know, she quoted Justice Ginsburg as saying, get it right and get it tight. Um, I think Ginsburg on the court was truly a model for precision and clarity. Indeed, if you ever spoke to her in person, it was evident she was very careful, very thoughtful about her choice of words, uh, whether talking or whether in writing. Um, she herself observed that when she was a student at Cornell, she had studied English under Vladimir Nabokov, and that she had learned the importance of choosing the right word, the right order of words, because it could make an enormous difference in how you convey an image or an idea. And I think she held to that in her judicial career, and you see that in opinions like her powerful dissent in Holder versus Shelby County. I also think, and this is an aspect of it, I think it's very important that courts, in their opinions, write with both clarity in the sense that people should understand the reasoning and what the court's saying, but also transparently clear what is truly driving the court's decision. Third, um, Justice Ginsburg, like William Brennan before her, has consistently been a voice for the role of courts in promoting equal justice under law. Um, the dissent in Shelby County is an illustration, but there are many others. Uh, people probably recall the 2009 case, Lily Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire Company, where a majority of the court held that a person could not recover for wage discrimination longer than six months before their last paycheck, even though they may not have been aware that the discrimination was occurring. Um, Justice Ginsburg's dissent prompted Congress ultimately to amend the law. Another example coming from Arizona would be her dissent in uh, Safford County, Safford School District versus Redding, where the majority of the court held that a, 
school district's officials could not be liable for ordering the unlawful strip search of a 13-year-old girl who was accused by a classmate of giving her to Advil. Um, the, the student was ordered into a closed room and uh, forced to strip to her underwear. And um, Justice Ginsburg powerfully wrote that no school official should have thought that under those circumstances, those actions were lawful, objecting to the majority's uh, holding that the school district was immune from its actions. More recently, uh, people probably recall the dissent in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Um, this was an important decision in 2014 where the court held by a 5-4 vote that a closely held corporation was not required to afford insurance coverage for contraceptives to its employees based on the owner of the corporation's objections on religious grounds. So it, it's based on a statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But um, Justice Ginsburg, more than uh, certainly the majority would even acknowledge, was quite conscious of what this holding meant was that a billion dollar corporation, albeit closely held, not publicly traded, could deny contraceptive coverage to its employees nationwide. And, and that would have a profound impact on women employees who were unable otherwise to obtain contraceptives and an effect on their life opportunities. A fourth aspect of her legacy is her view of democracy and her um, decisions on that topic, apart from Shelby County. Um, she was deeply troubled by the direction of the court's jurisprudence. She thought um, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission 2010 decision uh, that the court decided by 5-4 vote was one of the most troubling and harmful decisions over her judicial career. She didn't dissent separate, separately in that case. She joined Justice Stevens, but that's the case where the court held that Corporations and unions have a First Amendment right to spend money out of their treasury directly advocating the defeater election of political candidates. Uh, upended a law that had nearly 100 years history in federal campaign finance regulation. Um, similarly, she dissented from efforts to cut back other aspects of the Voting Rights Act. Now, on a, on a happier note, um, Justice Ginsburg, in a case that was important for our nation and certainly for our state, in 2015 wrote the 5-4 majority opinion in Arizona State Legislature versus the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. That was the opinion that held that our voter-established independent commission can draw boundaries for state and congressional legislative districts. Um, that's a case uh, that Frankly, I think everyone should be concerned about its future because uh, she was in the majority along with Justice Kennedy. Neither of them are any longer, of course, on the court. But Justice Ginsburg, in the, in the law of democracy generally, was very concerned about protecting the right of individual voters, about recognizing how in the real world money and institutional forces could dilute those voices. Um, she just dissented this past spring in a case called Republican National Committee versus the Democratic National Committee, 
The court in a brief per curiam order said that in Wisconsin, in the primary, it was improper for a federal court to have ordered that mail-in ballots received after April 7th, the election day, postmarked after April 7th, could be counted. Justice Ginsburg pointed out in her dissent that what the trial court had based its decision on was the fact that many voters were not even going to receive their mail-in ballots until after April 7th. So that by saying that you couldn't accept ballots postmarked after April 7th, the court was effectively disenfranchising those voters who in the midst of the pandemic may have had no way to get to the polls and weren't going to get their mail-in ballots beforehand. Um, fifth, and this is I guess my last aspect of our legacy is we're coming I think close to the end of the allotted time. We can go, uh, we can go a few minutes past if you need. Okay, well, let me, because one thing no one has commented on, commented on that is important and I think ties some of these topics together is Justice Ginsburg as a figure of pop culture, a um, cultural icon under the uh, nomaker Notorious RBG. Um, no other justice, I think, in our history has gotten that kind of attention. And it partly reflected her evolving role as the great dissenter. It partly reflected her historic role in advancing gender equality. I think it also reflects that she, on the court, um, fought back against uh, efforts to obfuscate what was happening. She, uh, spoke truth to power, and that has tremendous traction in today's world. Um, and it was, it was something that she actually embraced. I can recall going to some events, and you would sometimes see Justice Ginsburg with her notorious RBG tote bag. Um, and in fact, she even remarked to a biographer that sometimes when she was feeling down, she'd watch the Juicy RBG, RBG Juicy music video. Um, and I think it is, it's something we should celebrate about her, that her message would be embraced by so many. And it is perhaps a, a more popular uh, embracing of that saying that she had at the door to her chambers, justice, justice shall you pursue. Scott, it's, it's very, very Jewish to include dissents and to celebrate dissent. Well, um, that was certainly a, a vital part of her legacy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Judge Gerst, Judge Bales, Dr. Cabot, Judy Schaffert for organizing. Uh, and this, this was so elucidating on her, her history, her, her leadership, her scholarship. Uh, so I'm so grateful to you all for, for your time. And for all of you who learned, I know many attorneys are on here <laughs> who are top-notch attorneys in the state who, who uh, are messaging me their appreciation as well. And I just want to remind us, uh, we're able to do these programs because of our membership. For those of you who were able to continue to support us as members, please check the link out in the chat over there. And we hope you'll continue to join us in our daily programming. May, uh, may the notorious RBG's memory be a blessing. 
And may all those who work in the field of justice continue to have clarity, moral clarity, legal clarity, and uh, have long life and good health in all of your work. Thank you so much. Many blessings to everyone. Have a great day.